I'm an alcoholic and my name is Chris. Hi, everybody. I want to uh, have a really large podium here. Um, yeah, it's obviously built for Rick, not for the speakers that he was so gracious to. Uh, I, um, I want to thank the committee. I want to thank Diana for uh, inviting me to be here. All the committee, all the people that I haven't met on the committee, all the work that you've done, thank you very much. Um, I've never been to your roundup before, but uh, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, uh, and it makes me proud to see Alcoholics Anonymous in action wherever I go. Um, the beautiful thing for me about Alcoholics Anonymous is that, um, that we're not all trying to make each other into the same person here you know um, we're here to uh, in my understanding we're here to, to have a spiritual experience so that we can live and then we can have the kind of life that we want to have whatever that may be um, but I love Alcoholics Anonymous I consider it an honor and a privilege to participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Silkworth writes in the in the doctor's opinion of the big book about Bill Wilson coming to him and asking him for the privilege of talking to another alcoholic. And what I love about that is that Dr. Silkworth says that he begrudgingly consented. He didn't think it was a good idea, but he let him do it anyway, you know? I guess he figured how much damage could they do, you know? One's already in the hospital, so how much damage could they do? Um, before I get started, I, I want to say that um, I was looking at your archives back there and, and, uh, and some of the uh, some of the past programs, and, and I'm truly honored to, to share this podium with the speakers that you've had over the years, um, and, and, and this weekend. Jimmy gave a great talk last night. I know that Edie will give a great talk tomorrow. Um, I love hearing Bo, and uh, Bo caught me off guard a little last night. I, I asked him how things were, and he didn't say fine, and, uh, and I appreciate that. Um, because, you know, my impression when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous was that these speakers had these extraordinary lives, and they must be extraordinary all the time. And my experience 19 and a half years later is speakers speak because they're good at speaking. That's it. That's the only qualification for being a speaker is that you speak, which all of us can do. I, I, there's, we're not here for living. No one came and looked at my apartment before they asked me to be here. I can assure you of that. If I die before I get home, people are going to think I was robbed. They're going to say, it's a shame he died because he had been robbed just before his death. So, um, I... I and, and, and this room reminds me of so much of alcoholics, so many of the people I know in Alcoholics Anonymous. Lots of room to grow. <laughs> I'm comforted that this room fits 1,285 people dining, you know. Um, anyway, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I, I, because this is Alcoholics Anonymous, you have me as a speaker. I, I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles, California. I was in Lafayette, Louisiana last week. I felt closer to home in Lafayette than I do here. I'm, I'm from the city, you know. This is, the, this is how I like my streets. You know, I, I, this would be a nice place for me to live, right here, in the middle of all you people. That's what I like. I mean, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I, but I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'm, a, uh, I'm the firstborn son of a manic-depressive Italian woman and a pathologically silent Irishman, okay? This makes me wildly emotional in a very quiet way. 
Okay, I, I can just be standing still, just going nuts on the inside, you know? I'm just standing here. I'm keeping track of who followed Rick's suggestion and who didn't. Not that I'm judging. I'm not judging, I'm just reporting, you know? I, um, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and I hated it. I hated everything about it. I grew up on a quiet little, and a, in a quiet little house on a quiet little street with two quiet little parents, a quiet little sister, and a cat. And I hated it. All I ever wanted to be was from the Bronx or Brooklyn or Harlem or Compton. I just wanted to be from somewhere where stuff happened. Thank you. I just wanted to be from somewhere where life happened, you know, where but before I ever drank, I read books. I love to read books. I read books about kids in trouble. I read books like The Outsiders and That Was Then, This Is Now. And I read a book, my favorite book was Go Ask Alice. I, I don't know if you know, Go Ask Alice is the anonymous diary of a teenage drug addict. I love that book. I used it as a textbook. Something stressful. Alice was into reds, barbiturates, second off. I didn't have access to reds, so I would carry those little red-hot candies around with me. And if something stressful would happen, I'd pop a couple in my mouth. And they would relax me. I wanted to date Alice. You know, some days I wanted to be Alice. I just, uh, I, um... I identify as an alcoholic because it's Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm also a drug addict. I think it's important for me to say that I don't use any chemicals that affect me from the neck up with the exception of caffeine, nicotine, and sugar. I don't know why those three drugs were exempted, but they have been, and we're not going to argue about it. I'll take what you'll give me. I, um... I had my first drink when I was nine years old. Uh, I was staying with my cousin at the time. My cousin was everything that I wanted to be. He was a liar, a cheat, and a thief. And he kept a 22 rifle under his mattress. I love that. I couldn't hide a pack of Marlboro. He hides a 22 rifle with a scope, never gets caught. I mean, I just love this guy, you know? And uh, what he would, what I loved about my cousin was that nothing was as it appeared to be. He had this closet full of toys, you know, Parcheesi, Slugger, Sam, all these games. But if you open the boxes, nothing was there. It was car radios, 8-track tapes. I mean, there were no games. I love that. That's, that's good to me, you know. I, um, one night they, they, they didn't rob people. He, he, he would want me to tell you he didn't rob people. He robbed people that robbed people. These other guys would rob houses and then my cousin and his friends would steal the stolen stuff so that the thieves wouldn't benefit from their crimes. That's how he explained it to me anyway. No wonder his chief financial officer of one of those biotech labs up in the Bay Area, you know. Some stuff you just can't learn in school. And what happened is they stole a case of whiskey and a couple of cases of Carling Black Label beer. They told me I could be the bartender. I could open everybody's beer and take one sip. I realized if you're only allowed one sip, take a big sip. I'm alcoholic. I'm not an idiot, you know. I was nine. They were 13 and 14. That night I drank for the first time. And it was the last time I ever drank not knowing why I was drinking. The effects of alcohol on me were immediate. I felt 
a, a, a sense of ease and comfort that I had never felt before. I have a memory of walking up to a grown man. Now I'm five feet seven inches tall tonight. This is as tall as I've ever been. When I was nine, I was a lot shorter. I have a memory of walking up to a grown man who was walking his dog, putting my arm around his shoulder, looking him dead in the eye and saying, Get bent. I don't know what that means tonight. It was the ability to walk up to a grown man, look him dead in the eye and say, Get bent. That's what I loved about alcohol, you know. And uh, later that same evening, alcohol allowed me to throw up in my sleeping bag. So as to not get caught, my cousin wouldn't let me let his mother clean my sleeping bag, so alcohol allowed me to sleep in my puke for a week. Oh, please. I don't want to hear the horror stories of you people up here. You know, okay, the first night it's gross, but you scrape it out, you're drunk, who cares? You know, the second night it's drying up, by the third night it's flaking off, by the end of the week... By the end of the week, you barely remember vomiting there. I mean... Now, if you'd asked me a week later, what did alcohol do for you? I would have said it allowed me to walk up to a grown man, look him dead in the eye, and say, get bent. I would have already forgotten that alcohol allowed me to sleep in my puke for a week. You know, and, and that's the way I drank. And the next time I drank, we drank monkey brew. Monkey brew is everybody steals something with alcohol in it. You don't have to steal it, but if you're 12, it's probably the way it's going to happen. And uh, you mix it all together. That night, we were drinking vodka, gin, bourbon, beer, wine, and champagne. Oh, I know. I know. I can tell you a couple things about this liquid. It was purple. It had foam. The foam was purple. And I swear to you, it swirled in the glass when it sat on the table. Now, we went to the eighth grade dance at presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary School, and, and my best friend Matt threw up on a nun. Now, I stand before you. Perhaps some of you think that I'm attempting to hide a bald spot. That's not what I'm doing. I, I'm Jewish. I cover my head out of respect for God and and to identify with the Jewish community. Um, but I grew up Catholic. So I was thrown up on the same team that night when Matt threw up on the nun. I tell you, it's spiritually very liberating for two young boys to throw up on a nun. Perhaps not for her, but it was for us. Um, it was a theological statement in a certain way. And uh, see, I grew up Catholic. I grew up, I, I like to say I grew up Catholic enough to know I was going to hell. That's about as Catholic as I ever felt. Catholic enough to know that I wasn't really Catholic. Not like you were Catholic, you know. And it didn't matter what. I was different. Way back when, I was different in so many ways, you know. And, and, and we all have our ways of being different. My particular ways don't really matter. What is important for me to tell you is that I felt different. I don't know that I was different. I just felt different. And that's really all that matters. John H. down in L.A., I love, you know, people say uh, feelings aren't facts. They say that as a comfort. And then my friend John says, but I never drank over the facts. You know, I felt different. It doesn't matter if I'm different or not. I feel different. You know, and, and that's the way I grew up. And, and that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, my parents went through Catholic school all the way through college. My mother then went into the convent. She left, thank God, because otherwise only half of me would be standing here tonight. And it would be the quiet half. So this would be a really long meeting. And um, 
but my aunt's a nun, which makes Jesus my uncle. I, I, it does. I, I'm not making that up. That's church doctrine. She's a bride of Christ. She's my aunt. He's my uncle. I only tell you to brag, but... My, uh... I don't think you probably know the caliber of speaker you have this evening, so I'll just take a minute to explain. Uh, my aunt has spent most of the, most of my life and most of well, probably literally the last 20 years in a mental hospital, um, struggling with uh, with mental illness. And there was a time when she had three pictures on her wall. She had a big picture of the Pope and a somewhat smaller picture of Jesus, and next to that a picture of me. I wasn't getting top billing, but I was right there, you know. The third time I drank, I drank 16 Genesee cream ales. I drank 16 because that's as many as I would I could drink. Someone came up to me halfway through the night and they said, "If you continue to drink, all you're going to do is ruin tomorrow." Okay. That's a no-brainer. I have always been willing, drunk or sober, to ruin tomorrow on the hopes of making tonight just a little bit better. <laughs> now, as I mentioned before, I'm a drug addict. I identify as an alcoholic because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's important for me to tell you that I'm a drug addict. I wait until this, this point in my talk really out of respect for Bill Wilson, who didn't mention drugs until page 7. <laughs> And then waited to mention them again until page 22. So, you know. What I loved about alcohol is it affected me as I drank it. What I hated about pills is so, you know, you take two, nothing would happen. You take two more, nothing would happen. You take two more, nothing would happen. You take two more, the first two would kick in. You spend the whole rest of the night trying to remember your name and social security number, you know. I, I, I would take absolutely anything I could get my hands on. I'd swallow it and then go look it up in Earl Mindell's pill and vitamin Bible to find out what it was that I was taking. Not that I cared, I was just looking for a direction. A great shock the day I found out I was on a three-day run of estrogen. My mother had been depressed for many years and I'd been stealing her antidepressants. Suddenly she was going through menopause and I was about to change my life in a very significant way. And all I can tell you tonight is thank God estrogen doesn't get you high. Because if estrogen had gotten me high, I would have kept taking it. I would have been like, I can deal with that later. I've got great calves. I'd look great in heels. Thank God estrogen doesn't get you high. I drank for seven years start to finish. Had I known I was going to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have drank more. Had I known I was going to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, safe, sane, and sober, I would have done more. Personally, I wish I were a bank robber. No particular reason, I just think that would have been cool. I wish I'd stolen a tugboat and gone to Paris. But I didn't. Every drink I ever took was to alleviate fear. Every drink I ever took caused me to lose control and created more fear. So I needed another drink to alleviate that fear, which caused a greater loss of control, which created more fear, which created a need for another drink. It was cyclical, it was medicinal, and that's the way I drank, that's the way I used. I was trying to not be me. I don't know why I didn't like me, but I didn't like me. I don't know why I had a ton of fear, but I had a ton of fear, and I don't know why I had so much anxiety, but I have anxiety. I have self-centered fear. I'm still self-centered. 
someone in the back of the room when I'm speaking goes like this, I go like this. I think they're trying to tell me there's shit flying out of my nose, you know? Now, if I don't know by now, 19 years later, that the people in the back of the room don't care if there's shit flying out of my nose, I'll never learn that. Hell, some of them aren't even here with us. Some people here are paying the rent right now. Some people here are having relationships right now. We don't know, but I know one thing for sure. They don't care what, you know. I could be blowing a big book out of my nose and they wouldn't care, you know? I, um... What happened for me is that, um... In November of 1979, my friend Lizanne got sober. And Lizanne was the kind of drinker that I had always wanted to be. We drank in a park mainly. And Lizanne would be drinking... You know, everyone's job when we were drinking was to kind of keep an eye on Lizanne. She was a wanderer. You know, and all night long, everybody... Okay, there she is, there she is, there she is. And then suddenly you'd hear, Damn it, she's gone! And she would be. And she'd be gone for two or three days. She'd be gone to New York City or Atlantic City or on a bus bound for Ohio, you know. And uh, she'd wander back when she got back, you know. And... uh, when she got sober, I noticed that. And in the three months that she was sober, before I got sober, I saw a change in her eyes. I don't know how to describe it. Words don't really describe it. But I saw something change about her. There was a difference, and I noticed it. And so in February of 1980, I, uh, I had a hit-and-run accident with a Catholic priest. I made a brave and daring getaway, and he caught me, which is as close to a burning bush as I will ever get. I... Uh, he wasn't dressed like a priest, which I think should be against the rules. He asked me if I'd been drinking. I said, no, Father, I wasn't thinking. He said, I said, drinking. I said, no, I'm just upset about the accident. He'd asked for the, my registration, and I handed him the entire contents of the glove compartment. I looked at that mess, and I just knew I'd never find the registration. And uh, it was my mother's car, so what I was giving him was maps to places we'd never been games to play on trips we never took, a book of sonnets, pencils with no points, lots of mom tissue, you know that balled up tissue, you don't know if it's been used or if it's just been in her purse forever, you know, that kind of, you know, you can be with your mother or your grandmother, she won't have any pockets and you'll ask for a tissue and she'll just have one. And you need the tissue so you don't want to ask too many questions about where this tissue came from. It's better not to know. I just gave it to him. He uh, asked me if I would mind walking home. I said, no problem, Father. He got in his car and he left and I got back in my car and I kept driving. And, uh, and as the road went to the left, I went straight and as I went over a sign that said no parking anytime, I thought it's a good damn thing they don't let people park here because... Uh, That could be dangerous. And now when I got where I was going, which was a Tuesday night hockey game or a Monday night hockey game, the only thing that was different is that my friends didn't laugh. My friends didn't laugh and my friends didn't let me drive home. Now, if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, first of all, I want to welcome you. I I hope for you an experience in Alcoholics Anonymous like I've had. Um, I'm not a real big believer in, in pitching real strong to you. Um, because when I was new, I didn't believe a goddamn thing you people said. I couldn't figure out what you wanted from me, so I just want you to know I really don't want anything from you. I hope that you stay. I hope that you get sober, and I hope that you find the life that you've always looked for. Better than that, I hope that you find a life that you never even thought you could have. You know, because if you had given me everything I wanted when I got here, I'd have a lifetime supply of Marlboros and a Camaro. 
That's about as big as my thinking got when I got here, you know. I don't even smoke anymore. I'd be stuck carting around this lifetime supply of Marlboros. But what happened was that my friends didn't didn't laugh and they didn't let me drive. And and uh, and and what I was going to say is, you know, if you're new, you'll hear old timers and they always talk like this. They always think, say things like, "Kid, hey kid, come here. Let me tell you something about when I got sober, kid. We didn't have meetings with air conditioning. I'll tell you that, kid." Smoked? Hell, we ate cigarettes, kid. We didn't brew coffee. We put the grounds in our mouth and we drank hot water. That's the way we had it. Yes, sir. Hospitals? Hell, we threw a guy in the closet, took him out a week, took him to a meeting. That's the way we got sober, kid. But I want to tell you this, that when I got sober, it was back in the days before friends don't let friends drive drunk. Back in the days of friends go out driving drunk with friends. Remember those days? Some days we'd walk to the party and go get the car later. We didn't have to drive drunk. We wanted to. And they wouldn't let me drive home. And they they drove me home. They put me in, you know, they got me home. I, my parents were separated at the time. My mother said, call your father. I called my father. He said, I said, he said, what kind of car did you hit? I said, a white one. I wouldn't know that car if I were if parked next to it tonight. I wouldn't know that priest if I were if he were sitting here. What happened for me is I got up the next morning, I, I got on the bus to go to school. Now, we smoked pot every morning on the bus, but I didn't smoke pot that morning. Not because I was making a lifelong decision, but because I didn't want to throw up on myself. I'd once seen Joe Doherty throw up. If, I don't know. I, I'm not a, a scientist. I don't know physics that well. But I can tell you this, that if you throw up in closed quarters like in a bus, your natural reaction is to put your hands up. If you put your hands up, they're going to most naturally be cupped. If you throw up with the force to throw up that vomiting occurs into your cupped hands it's really just going to turn right back on you and shower you and I'd once seen Joe do that I share that really with you after dinner only in the hopes of diminishing that memory for me and, and letting you carry the burden of that for the years to come it's not worked yet but I'm still trying and uh so I didn't get high that morning and I got to school and I threw up in the hallway which is not allowed in Catholic boys school and I uh I went home and I went home and I called Alcoholics Anonymous I can't explain to you any more than that. I opened the yellow pages and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I imagine I called Alcoholics Anonymous because my friend Lizanne was in AA. I don't know. I don't know if I hadn't gotten sober that day if I would have gotten sober the next. I don't know. All I know is that I called Alcoholics Anonymous. A woman answered the phone. What I actually called was a little thing called the 319 Club. A woman answered the phone, Alcoholics Anonymous, may we help you? I said, yeah, how do you get into AA? She said, the door. <laughs> I thought, you know, we don't need that kind of attitude from our phone workers. She said, if you get here by 12.30, I'll take you to a board meeting. I thought, a board meeting? I'm not even a member yet. What kind of shoddy organization are these people running? I got there around 2.30. When I got to AA, there were three guys in AA. They were the 350-year-old Russian guys from those Danny Yogurt commercials back in the 70s. You remember those Russian guys? They could barely move. Then they'd eat the yogurt. They could do backflips and cartwheels. And those three guys were in AA when I got here. I looked at them. I thought, if I don't drink for as long as they've been alive, I can't have a drink for 134 years. That was early February of 1980. I was 16 years old. I was in the middle of my junior year in high school. And I was soon to find myself a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Uh, a couple of 
Well, what happened was that, that as I sat there that afternoon, they gave me my first cup of coffee, an addiction I'll thank them for forever. I'm not really addicted to coffee. I just drink it so as to not get a headache. I don't have to drink it until noon. Up until noon, it's a choice. A choice I make every day, but a choice nonetheless. And, uh, and I sat there and people would come in, they'd give me their cards, the numbers, they'd tell me to call them. They'd tell me to call them any time. They'd give me a brief rundown on their life. They'd tell me that they were sober, alcohol, they were alcoholics, they didn't drink anymore, they had a big job, had a big house, had a lot of stuff, had to go do it, here's their card, call any time. By the end of that day, I had a whole pile of cards. And I do that, I have cards. I have numbers. Sometimes I write call any time. You underline that, you put an exclamation point. You want this guy to know that he can call any time. I do that because it was what was done for me. I want to give back what was so freely given to me. The other reason I do it is I know he's never going to call. He's not. If he calls, he's going to call when he thinks I'm not there. Ten in the morning, two in the afternoon, seven in the evening. He's not going to call in the middle of the night. I wasn't going to call Gordon in the middle of the night and say what? Hi, Gordon, this is Chris. We met in Alcoholic Times today. Yeah. Just sitting here thinking about my life. Just thinking about what a horrible life I've been. Just thinking that perhaps I am the cause for the decline in Western civilization. No, I'm not going to do it. That's why I drank, so I wouldn't have to call my best friend in the middle of the night. Now I'm going to start calling strangers? No, sir. I would have rather been beaten with a baseball bat than had to call you in the middle of the night. The next day, a guy called me. Scared me to death. He said, Chris. I said, yeah. He said, this is Paul. We met in AA yesterday. I said, hey, Paul, how are you? He said, I'm fine. I'm going to an AA meeting tonight. Would you like to go? I said, yeah. I didn't want to go to AA. I wanted to say, Paul, I went to AA yesterday. You mean I got to go two days in a row? I said, yes, because that's what I say. Six people called. I would have said yes to every single one of them. First one that gets there gets me. at that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where I caught alcoholism. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would suggest that you catch alcoholism. Having alcoholism is the key to recovering from alcoholism. Lots of people die of alcoholism without ever knowing they have it. And again, don't get alcoholism from me. Because my recovery does not depend upon your recovery. My recovery depends upon my trying to help you, but it doesn't... If it depended on you recovering, believe me, you would recover. (laughs) Because I got a lot to lose today, you know. I I have a rich and a deep and a full life, and uh, and I want to keep that, you know, and I want to keep growing that life, you know. But back there in the second week of February 1980, I didn't have any life at all. And they went around that meeting and they talked about alcoholism. And by halfway through that meeting, I raised my hand. I said, I think I might be alcoholic. By the end of that meeting, I was running around going, I'm alcoholic. That's what's wrong with me. I have alcoholism. And believe me, in my family, having alcoholism is like going to Harvard. If you come through the mental illnesses in my family with alcoholism, you're doing very well. My uh, my aunt, I told you, spent has spent most of her... Uh, most of most of the last 20 years I don't know exactly how long in mental institutions my uncle died last year as a result of a heart attack as a result of choking and when they went to revive him when they gave him the Heimlich maneuver and CPR his heart had been so damaged through years and years of of chemical chemical use prescribed chemicals for his his various emotional and mental illnesses that that his heart gave out and he died Um, he wasn't you know he was, he was, you know, 
he had mental illness. My mother suffered from depression most of my life. You know, she's been treated for everything from depression, from you know lithium and Valium in the old days, through the Prozac, and and most recently, and not you know, 15 years ago, but more like last week with um, electroshock. You know, ongoing electroconvulsive therapy. Now, from what I understand, it's not like Jack Nicholson and Cuckoo's Nest, but you know, how good can it be? You know. Um, and, and that's that's what happens, you know. That's that's what I have to look forward to. I don't think I'm the go out in a blaze of glory type alcoholic. I'm the die a slow, quiet death after having lived an unfulfilled, miserable life type of alcoholic. You know, that's what I'm afraid of. You know, what keeps me in the room is is working. You know, is, is that that 19 and a half years of sobriety, I can still get so scared and so depressed that I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I don't have a relationship with God because God's so great and I wish I'd always done that. I have a relationship with God because that's what you told me I had to have if I wanted to recover from alcoholism. And I, that's what I want. You know, I realized at 16 if I were going to spend the rest of my life in Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a good chance I'd be in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And I didn't want to be the kind of guy that ended up with his own seat at the Alano Club, a stack of Oreo cookies, and a mug with my name on it. You know, I'm shooting for more here, folks. I'm shooting for more. You know, and you told me in Alcoholics Anonymous that I could have anything I wanted, as long as I was willing to do the work to get it. And I can tell you that some days I'm willing to do the work and some days I'm not. But that I've remained sober since the day that I got here. Shortly, I've, I got here on the 5th of February, and a friend of mine who was my, uh, was my drug dealer, he would come up to me every day at school and he would offer me a different drug thinking that one day he would hit upon one that I was willing to take. And in fact, he did. On, on, a, on or about the 12th or 13th of February, he asked me if I wanted to snort some Coke. And Coke wasn't my problem. I couldn't really afford to have a problem with Coke. So I did. And I sat that afternoon in the AA club with the chemical residue of cocaine running down the back of my throat, thinking, I don't think this is what they mean. You know? And, and since then, I've been chemically uh, clean. And, and so I marked the 14th of February, 1980, as my sobriety day. This past February 14th, I celebrated 19 years of continuous sobriety. I got sober when I was 16 years old. I've been sober more than half my life. For every two days I've been on earth, I've been a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous for more than one of those days. And nowhere, it doesn't get me much here. It gets me nothing anywhere else. <laughs> Except the looks that the freaks in the sideshow must have gotten, you know. Um, but I can tell you that not everything that I have in my life that matters to me is, 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 I don't, everywhere I go in my life where I am that, that matters to me, I don't announce that my name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic. My life is full of things that where alcoholism doesn't play a part. But all of those things are in my life because of my membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, this is the foundation upon my upon which my life has been built. And my experience is that these principles and these steps work in my life when I work them. I wasn't able to work the steps 19 years ago and drift on with that step work all these years. You know, in the same way that had I taken a really great shower in February of 1980 and not showered since, that shower wouldn't make much sense to you. You wouldn't be going, I'm damn glad he showered 19 years ago. <laughs> that shower made the difference. No. It was important that I shower this evening. You know, and, and that's what I've learned about Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that my experience here is not just linear, but cyclical. 
you know. I am not just going outward in a direction. I come back and I repeat the same behaviors. I don't, I don't hear things in alcoholics. I, I attend the same, you know, types of meetings. I go into a meeting, they open it sometimes with a prayer, sometimes without a prayer. They read something out of the big book or they don't. They read the steps, they read the traditions, they read how it works. We share about a topic, we hear a speaker, we have participation. The same basic thing. There's not like an advanced AA. There's not, I'm not doing graduate work now. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not three masters in and getting my doctorate second time, you know, uh, ancient uh, Aramaic, you know, uh, studying why Noah drank after the ark came to rest. Because if I can figure out why Noah drank, then I'll know why I drank. No, I'm doing the same things. I'm talking about the same things. I'm complaining about the same things. I'm, I'm going, it's, it's over and over. And, and yet, my life is completely different. And yet, you can't get here from where I started. I'm thousands of miles and millions of years away from where I started. You know, I came here completely different than the person I am today. You know, and, and, and the reason I am the person I am today is because of the principles that are in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have had what Dr. Silkworth calls an entire psychic change. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I'm uncomfortable with using the word entire because I'm probably holding on to something. But, you know, the, the person that I am is not recognizable to me as the person that I was. You know, and, and that is because of Alcoholics Anonymous and working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and when I first got here, I thought, you know, I'm too young to be like a 12-step alcoholic. I'm probably just like a maybe a six-step alcoholic. Not that I didn't want to do the work. I just didn't... I mean, I could easily see why you people needed 12 steps. I mean... Some of you are more like 18-step alcoholics. I mean, I, that was clear to me. Uh, but but I was probably a six-step, maybe only a three-step alcoholic, you know. And, and uh, so I wasn't a, a mad rush into the steps. AA number three in our book talks about doing the steps in 48 hours. That was not my experience, you know. What I did do is I started to attend meetings, you know, and uh, and I started to get active in those meetings. And I got a sponsor. That guy Paul became my first sponsor, and uh, and I became active in the in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But like Bo was talking about this afternoon, simply sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous does not constitute, in my mind, recovery from alcoholism. Any more than as Bo said, sitting in a chicken coop doesn't make you a chicken. You know, simply being you know being five years old qualifies you for kindergarten, but it does not guarantee you an education. And having a desire to stop drinking qualifies you for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it does not cure alcoholism. You know, and so in my, what happened for me is I spent two and a half years here just kind of letting off the steam, sharing when I had to, talking to my sponsor, working a little bit with others. But basically I was walking around with untreated alcoholism. And finally, after two and a half years, I was dying. I was literally dying of alcoholism, safely a part of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that that happens here. Simply being here does not guarantee that we get to stay. And you know, uh, my sponsor Howard P talks about he talks about a story that he heard Don Gates tell, who who I noticed on one of those flyers was your speaker in 14 or 15 years ago. Don's a retired circuit court judge or an appeals court judge. I, I think it's an appeals court judge. Um, here in the state of California. And, uh, and and Don talks about if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you get sober and you don't work the steps, soon enough this is not going to be fun. And when it stops being fun, you're going to stop coming. 
And when you stop coming, you're going to go back to the bar. And when you get back to the bar, the bartender's going to say, Hey, you're going to order a drink, of course, and he's going to give it to you. And he's going to say, Hey, I thought you went to AA. Doesn't AA work? He says, Just be honest and tell him you don't know if AA works or not. You didn't try it. Because simply sitting here, part of a meeting, having a commitment, having, you know, is not recovering from alcohol. It's not the program of recovery that is outlined in the book. You know, and so I, and that's what I had done. I had sat in meetings for two and a half years and not worked the steps. And I was just dying. You know, and I had moved from Philadelphia. I graduated from high school and I moved to Florida. I figured I'd take my retirement first. Uh, who, who the hell knows how long I'm going to live? I want to get that retirement in, you know? I'll work right till the bitter end if I have to, but I want that retirement, you know? And I moved down there and I got a sponsor. I got a sponsor. Mean old man. Now, now he wasn't that old either, now, now that I'm getting older. I, you know, I don't know about your pattern in sponsorship, but I go nice sponsor, mean sponsor, nice sponsor, mean sponsor. That's my personal pattern. And um, he, he I, you know, there was a, a young woman that I liked in Alcoholics We were both 18, and she couldn't stay sober. And I knew that although no human power could have relieved my alcoholism, I knew there was a human power that could have relieved her alcoholism, and that I, in fact, was it. <laughs> And I used to ask John if I could date Lori, and he'd always say no. And, and finally one night he said, sure. And I said, really? He said, if you can handle the responsibility of killing her. It took some of the fun out of it for me, you know. I, John, I'd say things to John like, John, I need a better paying job. And he'd say, read page 127. So what the hell's on page 127? A, a job application that I missed? A no interest AA credit card? I mean, what the says that on page 127, although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, that it's always followed by spiritual progress. Never precedes it. I thought he was saying pray more. You know, like I'd be praying and God would be putting Europe to sleep and then he'd look over and see me and say, hey, that kid sure does pray a lot. Let's get him a better paying job, you know. What he was saying was work the steps, but I didn't hear him because he didn't say work the steps. And what happened was he was the chairman of the Florida State Convention that year. And so he put me in charge of security. Basically because there's no need for security. <laughs> what I did is I made graphs and charts of the hotel, exits, entrances. You know, I thought we treated something between... I'm half Italian, so I thought it would be like the Secret Service and the Mafia. I thought we'd have those things, we'd talk into our hands. Okay, the room is clear. Bring in the speaker. Get that newcomer away from the speaker. I realized that the reason I was in charge was because there was no need for security. Security in AA conventions consists mainly of standing outside the ladies' room and waiting to hear how many rolls of toilet paper they need. <laughs> Securing said rolls of toilet paper and waiting for someone to bring them in. But what happened for me is a couple of the speakers were from Southern California. One was a guy named Tom S., who at that time was finishing up his veterinary degree at, at, up at UC Davis. And Tom was about 28 years old, but he was only 8 years sober. I was only 18, but I was already 2 years sober. So I went over to explain to Tom how I was sober longer than he was. Well, he's eight, sure, but he's only 28. I'm 18, I'm already two. By the time I'm 28, I'll be 12. Using this math, I'm sober longer than almost everybody. And the great clincher is if you got sober younger than me, I just don't think you're alcoholic. <laughs> and, and in a matter of minutes, Tom was calling me teen dream and heartbreaker and asshole. <laughs> and I kept thinking, how does he know? <laughs> He asked me what step I was working. Those days I was getting ready to make a decision. Tell me, well, I would carry God. I can't believe when I'm over alcohol. Life's unmanageable. He said, is, is that in the book? 
I thought, I don't know, I've never read the book. <laughs> By the end of that weekend, I, I was on my knees with my sponsor saying the third step prayer. Tom would say things to me like, are you in school? I said, I'm looking at schools. He said, really? You just drive on the campus and look at the school. So at the end of the weekend, I'm saying my third, the third step prayer on my knees with my sponsor. It's a good time to start a fourth step. My sponsor said, bring over, you know, come over tomorrow, bring a pad and paper, and we'll start on a fourth step. I showed up with every fourth step guide known to man. I had the 12 and 12. I had NA was writing their literature at the time. I had they had a big like 200 page four step with a whole section on bestiality. You know, I mean they word went out some weeks later. Don't read that thing, man. Don't read that. You know, and I had the Hazelton guide to the four step. I had the Walmart guide to the four step. Uh, Sam takes you through the steps. I mean, I. I had everything but the big book. My sponsor said, where's the book? I said, I don't know. He said, if it was good enough for Bill Bob and the first hundred members, it's certainly good enough for you. I said, okay. Who is Mrs. Brown? What about my intentions to his wife? I mean, is that like on my way to coffee? I said, hey, Mrs. Brown, nice dress. Does that go on the list? <coughs> you know, there's only one picture. They might as well explain it. I found out it's relatively easy. Who do I resent? Everybody. Why do I resent them? They ruined my life. And what does that affect? My life. Then he said, leave room for a fourth column. Now that I know there's great debate growing in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether there really is a fourth column or whether there isn't a fourth column, I don't know. I don't care. I had a fourth column. The guys I sponsor have a fourth column. If I stay slow, stronger, slow, yeah sober longer than you there'll be a fourth cup I, I, what was important for me was to realize that what that, that there was something that I did that started the ball rolling that my resentments began with me because if they begin with me they can end with me and if they don't begin with me they, then I die I die from having resentments and if they don't start here they can't end here and if they can't end here I'm dead because if they start with you I'm dead you people know that You'll try to behave, but you'll fail. You always do. I mean, you want to do better, but you can't. You're, you're, you know, you're disadvantaged in certain ways. And it's hard, but I put up with it the best I can. That's why I have resentments in the first place. So I wrote that all down. I wrote my fears down. I wrote, but basically, I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of. You know, I used to write, I'm afraid of failure, I'm afraid of success. I'm not afraid of success. I'm afraid of failing at a higher level. <laughs> kind of like failing where I fail now. It's comfortable and I know everyone, you know. I, uh, I wrote down my sexual attitudes, my sexual relations. The important thing there is I answered the questions in the book. You know, and, and there are some crazy questions, you know. Was I selfish? I thought you were supposed to be selfish. Did I unjustifiably arouse suspicion and cause harm whenever I could? How else am I going to know you care? The important thing is I didn't answer the questions in my mind. Am I the biggest pervert that ever lived? It's not in the book. And I realized that after writing down my relationships, I realized that my relationships were a lot like downhill skiing. Stay with me with this one. I don't know much. 
I am not a downhill skier, believe me. But downhill skiing, the best I can figure out, it starts in the same place, right? And it ends in the same place. And it all takes relatively the same amount of time. I mean, hundreds of a second wins or loses. That's how my relationships were. They all started in the same place. They all ended in the same place. And they all took about the same length of time. And somewhere in the middle, they ring a cowbell. I don't know why they ring this cowbell, but they do. And, and there I was. I love that. Anyway, I was just struck. I, I, I didn't do my... my I, 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 when I got sober, I got sober in that clubhouse, and, and I, I, I usually talk about that because there's not a pamphlet. I've always looked for the pamphlet about how to decorate an AA club, and, and I can't find it, but I think there must be one because they're all decorated relatively the same way. I mean, right? There's always the sick guy in bed with the two healthy guys talking to him, Norman Rockwell-esque painting. There's always a rocky coast at sunset with serenity prayer scene. You've always got your, you know, your slogans at artistic angles down the wall, you know. And these, which these, this is the hall, this is kind of the hallmark. This is everything is designed around. These are window shades, okay? You spruce them up with ivy, attach them to lattice work. I don't care. That's a window shade, okay? There's a stick in the bottom and there's a string hanging out and that thing's on a roller and that's a window shade too. So lest you get too big for your britches, you, I just want you to remember that the two most important documents in our program are reproduced on window shades. You don't see the Constitution on a window shade, Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation, these things are not put on window shades. The Ten Commandments, I don't, the Quran, you don't find these documents on window shades. I don't know what the cornerstone of the Alfalfa Festival is, but I'll bet it's not on a window shade. Anyway, so I, uh, I, I bundled this whole thing up with twine and I took it to my sponsor and, and I figured we're in South Florida, we've got the Everglades, let's use them. We'll get big robes like Obi-Wan Kenobi wore, overhanging hoods and long sleeves. and We'll go out in the Everglades, we'll light a small fire. It has to be small because when I tear out my pages after chanting my fourth step, I'm not just going to read it. I'll chant it like Greek tragedy. I resent my mother! I'll tear out the page and I'll throw it on the small fire, which will suddenly become a large fire, signifying the connection between heaven and earth, and will carry the smoke and the ashes to the heavens, leaving me with a purified soul. Now, I hadn't mentioned this to him because, as I told you, he was a rigid kind of guy, but... Uh, I got in his car that night, he said, oh, you can start reading now. And I thought, in your Camaro? And then he goes to WAGS, which is the Florida equivalent of Denny's, except it's not national. And he sees I'm going to leave it in the car. He says, oh, by all means, bring it in. I thought I'm going to read my inventory in WAGS. Then he's inviting people to the table. He's like, hey, Eddie, come on over. Then he says, you don't have to read while Eddie's here. Thanks, John. Nor did I have to read while I ordered, so it wasn't like I'd like um, blue cheese dressing on the side and I resent my sister. And um, 
finally, after dinner, we went to a park. Unfortunately, it was at the end of runway number two at Fort Lauderdale International Airport, so every two and a half minutes he couldn't hear me anyway, you know? It was like, which is when you work the sex stuff in, you know? He, and then there was a dog. People always ask, was there a dog? All I can say is thank God I'm telling this story in a general way. I, uh... I, uh, he looked at his watch after a while. He said, hell, it's time to go to a meeting. I thought, what the hell, John? Let's do some volunteer work while we're at it. I mean, you want to pick up your dry cleaning? Uh, yeah. We finished up late that night by the light of the, his glove compartment. Parked in the driveway of the, ha of the apartment that I hadn't had when I started writing the four-step. Parked behind the car I didn't have when I started writing the four-step. I didn't find the keys one morning tucked in my big book. The lease wasn't part of my notebook one day. But I didn't have those things when I started and I did when I finished. And he told me to go inside and sit quietly for an hour and if there was anything I'd forgotten to call him up and if not to say the seven-step prayer. And I don't know if I was entirely willing to have my defects of character removed, but I was more willing than I'd ever been. You know, all my life I'd wanted to be a priest in the Marine Corps. I wanted to help you or snap your neck and step over your cold, dead corpse. You know what I mean? I want to help. I just don't want to be vulnerable. I said that prayer, and it's a good thing I didn't burn up that inventory because I needed it to make that a list of, of amends, you know, and I started to make those amends, you know, and, and I grew in leaps and bounds. I, I really did, you know, and, 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 I, and I spent most of the next, that was two and a half years sober, I spent, spent, I really came to a place when I was about ten years sober when I moved to Los Angeles where I realized that I had spent a great number of those years slowly, ever so slowly, taking back my will rebuilding a life that was based on self-centeredness a hundred forms of self-centeredness you know it's like that lighthouse in Cape Hatteras that they're moving a half a mile so slowly this is a 208 foot tall lighthouse they're moving it a half a mile on a metal track so slowly that to the naked eye it doesn't look like it's moving but after a set period of time it's going to be a half a mile inland that's the way I took back my will. So slowly that if you, I was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was active in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was pursuing my dream for a career in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was slowly taking back my will, and ultimately that's going to kill me. You know? And when I was 10 years sober, I moved to L.A., and, and I got a sponsor again. I, I mean, I, I, I think that I'm here tonight because I've stayed an active member all those years. Because I, I've gone without sponsorship... Um, but, I, but I've always been an active member of AA, you know, and, and I've done better with sponsorship. I remember that when, when I, what happened was I was living in New York, I was pursuing my dream, I was in drama school, I was having the time of my life, and, and that, the other speaker at that Florida convention was a guy named Clint H. And Clint lived in Los Angeles, and I started calling Clint on the phone, and Clint wouldn't take my calls because he asked if I had a local sponsor, and I said no. And he said, don't call me until you have a sponsor. So I got another sponsor, not because I wanted the sponsor, but because I wanted to call Clint. But I'll tell you, I was standing on 6th Avenue at about 48th Street in the middle of Midtown Manhattan on a Tuesday afternoon. I don't know if it was a Tuesday, but, you know, you got to say things like that when you're speaking because it just sounds better than I don't know what day it was. But it was the middle of the day, and there was thousands, tens of thousands of people on the street with me, literally tens of thousands of people. And I called this guy, and I said, Berkeley, would you be my sponsor? And he said, yes, and I felt better. 
because the size of my team had just doubled in one phone call you know and 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 we had a great relationship and I wouldn't have even had that relationship except that I wanted to call some guy somewhere else but when I moved to LA Clint became my sponsor and we worked the steps together and we worked together for a couple of years and it was a good time and when we parted company Howard P became my sponsor and, and Howard sent me back to the second step he sent me to build a relationship to find a God that I could believe in you know and, and I spent a couple of years searching for that God because I was 12 years sober and I had very much attached the, the, the way I felt about myself to the circumstances of my life. And Howard explained that if I continued to do that, I was going to get buffeted because the nature of life is an ebb and flow, up and down. And if I am attached to that, to the circumstances of my life, if my feeling about myself is dependent upon what's going on in my life, I'm going to get, you know. He said, you've got to build this relationship with God. You've got to find this, this God that is not subject to the circumstances of your life and I set out to do that and I set out to do that by talking to by listening to speakers and when I heard a speaker talk about God in a way that, that I was comfortable with I would talk to them and I read the, the, the autobiographies of men far greater than I I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I learned about what Malcolm X believed in God you know and I read the autobiography or not the autobiography but the writings of Albert Einstein and I learned what he believed in God you know, and, 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 and I, you know, I'm no scientist and I'm no Einstein. But Einstein talked about, you know, the, the wonder of the universe. And, and, and this idea, you know, and a guy named Cubby Selby, who's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, talked about getting rid of the punishing God. And if you're going to get rid of the punishing God, you have to get re rid of the, reward, the rewarding God. Because the punishing God and the rewarding God are two sides of the same coin. You know, and I was perfectly willing to give up the punishing God. But I wanted to be rewarded. I'm doing a lot of work here. I'd like to get rewarded. You know, and I had to let go of that. You know, and, I, and, I, and one of the things Einstein said was this, this idea of, of a personal God. You know, that that's where religion got in trouble. And, and I've tried to, to foster a belief that God is everywhere. That God is one. That it's all God. That's what the book says that either God is everything or God is nothing and that's what that's what the monotheistic religions say that's Christianity, Judaism and Islam a significant portion of the world believes that God is one and what I believe that means is that it's all God my active alcoholism was God my recovery from alcoholism was God you know I remember hearing Blanche I believe Blanche D from Dallas talking about she's a, a member of Al-Anon talking about when her mother was dying of cancer in a hospital down in Texas and she was sitting there and she was upset and she was in the waiting room and another patient came up to her and said honey what's wrong and she said my mother's dying she said your mother's going to be okay she said I don't think you understand my mother's dying I said and the woman said to her a fellow cancer patient said I didn't say your mother was going to live I said your mother was going to be okay you know and I and I have actively worked to get beyond the idea that I know what is good and what is bad. I have a bad picker in many areas of my life and picking good and bad is... Because I would have said alcoholism was bad. My active alcoholism would go in the bad category. But if I didn't have alcoholism, I wouldn't have you. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have the life that I have today. And this I would put in the good category. So I'm just trying to have life. Just, you know... 
in the same way that, you know, I breathe oxygen all day. Now, I don't have my oxygen and you don't have your oxygen. We just have oxygen. And as long as I keep breathing, I'm going to keep breathing. You know, it's that kind of thing for me. And that came after many years of sobriety. Because I've set out to get things and I haven't gotten them. You know, and I don't think that's the important thing. The important thing isn't that I get what I shoot for, but that I keep trying to get, that I stay active, that I stay involved. You know, I hope I don't offend anyone, you know. But when Moses was talking to the people of Israel when he was dying, he said, I set before you life and death, a blessing and a curse. Choose life that you and your children may live. That is, I believe, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We choose life over and over again with every call with every cup of coffee setting up every meeting and tearing down every meeting where is God? where is God? that was the search that was the question that was for me hundreds of years ago a follower asked his, his rabbi his Rebbe in Eastern Europe where is God? and the Rebbe said wherever you let him in and that same story is translated again in a different book and the the little follower says, where is God? And the translation is, whenever you let God in. And that is the truth for me. Where is God? Wherever I let God in. Where is God? Whenever I let God in. God doesn't need to hear my prayers. I don't believe that I pray for God to hear my prayers. I need to hear my prayers. I need to know that I'm striving to be connected to you. Because my default position is to be apart from you. I walk in looking for differences. I want to find differences so that if you don't like me, I know why. I want to find what's wrong with you so that when you find what's wrong with me, it doesn't matter anymore. You're already out. You know, and, and God, good, good orderly direction, you know, uh, the, the, this, this process of, of separating from is, is what I fight against and, and is, is, you know, the struggle of my life is to be connected with you and not apart from you. You know, and that's what Alcoholics Anonymous teaches me over and over again. That we're together. That we're a part of. You know, I... Uh, Howard talks about this idea about, you know, Edie was talking about the flea in the jar and, and, and Howard talks about the baby elephants and I just want to share that story because I always want to tell it and I never do. But when, it, when an elephant is, is, is a baby elephant and they're training the baby elephant, they attach to its leg a, a, a chain and they attach it to a tree. And it pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls and it can't move the tree. And soon enough it learns that when the bracelet is on its leg, it can't move. It can't go any further than the length of the chain. And for the rest of the elephant's life, they attach the bracelet to its leg and they attach the other end of the chain to a relatively short stake. They drive the stake into the ground and when the elephant pulls taut, it stops pulling. For 99% of that elephant's life, it could walk away, pull the stake out of the ground, and probably not even know. Except that it would have to pull through that feeling of tautness. And it won't do it. It never does. I once had brunch with a group of people, and one of the guys was an animal trainer. Now, my sponsor who tells that story is, a, is an engineer. How what the hell does he know about baby elephants? So I met an animal trainer and I said, is that true? He said, well, yeah, it's, it's more than a relatively short stake. But yes, the elephant could walk away and no, the elephant doesn't. And what Howard talks about is that, that what that belief is, is a baby elephant belief. And that's what I came here full of. Baby elephant beliefs. Beliefs that had once been true that are no longer true. 
That is the, 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 the length and the breadth of my membership in Alcoholics Anonymous has been dealing with that. Getting rid of baby elephant beliefs. Getting rid of old ideas. Trying to feel connected. Trying to remember that God is everything. Trying to remember that the great reality lies deep within. Trying to remember that, that, that it's all God. It's all God. You know, one more story and then I'll stop. I, um, the, the founder of... Um, I, I just want to tell you this. When, when, when I was 15 years sober, because, because what Howard told me was mark the places where you find God and go there often. And what I did is I, um, I, I, I kept reading, I kept being so intrigued with the culture of Judaism and the, and the, the religion of Judaism that, that I, I, I learned more and more about it and I decided to convert. Now, my name is Christopher. That's what the name my parents gave me. From the Greek, the Christ-bearer. When I converted to Judaism, I cho- they told me to choose a name, and I and I looked at all the names, and nothing really jumped out at me except Israel, for the whole the whole country, the whole people, the whole culture. I didn't know what the word meant. A couple of years later, I, I learned that the word means he who wrestles with God, and that's my name. That's what I am. I'm a wrestler. I'm not. I don't bear well. And in my experience, you know, I I just feel the need to present an alternative opinion. You know, I don't pray on my knees. I, I never comfortably prayed on my knees, but I don't even have to pray on my knees anymore because I belong to a group that doesn't pray on their knees. So, you know, work at it, and you can just find a group, too, that doesn't pray on their knees. I mean, for years, my favorite saint was a saint that's, whose position of prayer was lying on his back. He was my, he, that was my guy. It's, I forget who it was, but it was one of the Francis's, you know. That was my guy. But, but Ellie Wiesel, who survived Auschwitz, says you can love God or you can hate God. Just don't ignore God. And again, I would say not for God's sake, but for ours. You know, it's not important. I don't believe it's important for God that I have a relationship with God. It's important for me. It's important to know that I'm enmeshed in this and what we have. You know, so 200, 300 years ago, the Baal Shem Tov was born. And he was the founder of Hasidic Judaism. And Hasidic Jews are the, the, the ultra-Orthodox, the black hats, the payas, the, the tzitzit, the strings, the black suits. They look very somber and very serious. It's, a, it's an act. They are the, the most... The, in, in, their, in their way of praying is to dance and to laugh and to sing. They, they believe in exaltation as a path to God. Okay? And... At the time, Judaism was mired in law and, 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 and specifics, and, and, and they were uneducated, and they broke this pattern by finding this new way of believing in God and, and expressing that belief. And so when the Baal Shem Tov was ready to die, he gathered all his disciples and he gave them a job. And he called in this one guy who loved him dearly, and he said, your job is to go throughout Europe and tell the stories of our life, of our work. And the guy, like, you know, like when, you know, when your best friend is named secretary and they come up to you and they're like, how'd you like to be the literature person? And the first thing you say is, for how long? You know, I mean, you're glad that they're secretary, but for how long? And that's what he said. He said, for how long do I have to tell these stories? And he said, you'll know when to stop. And for years he crisscrossed Europe telling the stories of the Baal Shem Tov. And one day he realized, he said, I think I'm done. And then he heard that there was an Italian nobleman who was paying gold ducats to hear new stories of the Balshan home. And he thought, maybe I'm not done, done. You know, I... And he made his way there and he was brought in to see the nobleman. The nobleman was glad to see him. He was happy to see him. He was ecstatic in seeing him. And then he sat down and he couldn't think of a single story. Not one. And he sat there all day and he couldn't think of a single story. He was embarrassed. And the guy said, no problem, come back tomorrow. And the next day, nothing. He was humiliated. He said, I am the storyteller. This is all I do. 
I can't think of a single story. Three days, nothing. On the fourth day, finally, he said, you know, i got to leave. This is embarrassing. I can't believe this, you know. And he's making his way down the path to go back into town. And he thinks of a single story, seemingly inconsequential, seemingly insignificant. And he makes his way back to the nobleman. And he says, I, I thought of one just to... The guy's glad to see him. And he says, it's inconsequential, it's insignificant. I don't know why I'm telling you it, but it's the only story I can remember. I'm not even telling it for you. I just wanted you to know that I am who I say I am. And he starts to tell this story. He says, one spring season, the Baal Shem Tov said, get the horses ready, we're going to Turkey. Now, Turkey at the time was not a good place for Jews, particularly at Easter. The Christians were not only calling the Jews God-killer, but they were actually offering reparations each year for the uh, crime that had been committed. And he said, I don't think we should go to Turkey to get the horses ready. We're going to Turkey. So they make their way, and he thinks, okay, but as soon as we get there, we'll lay low, we'll hide in the ghetto, no problem, we won't, we'll stay out of the way. So they get there, the Balsham Tov opens the, the shutters that look down on the town square just as the Christian procession is entering the square, and he says, get the bishop. He says, I really don't think I should get the bishop. He looks kind of busy. He's got the thing. He's got that. Get the bishop. He goes down. He says to the bishop, the Baal Shem Tov would like to talk to you. He says, he wasn't happy, but he said, after Mass, I'll come up and talk to him. They go in the back room. They talk for three hours. They, the Baal Shem Tov comes out and he says, get the horses ready. We're going home. He says, the horses are already ready. And they make their way home. And that's the end of the story. It's a seemingly inconsequential, seemingly insignificant story. He doesn't know why he's telling this guy. And before he can apologize one more time, he looks up and the bishop has completely changed. His whole attitude and outlook on life have changed. He, he, he's, he looks different. He's crying. He's open. And when he, he stops the storyteller before he can apologize, and he stops him and he says, I was that bishop. I come from a long line of rabbis, and for many years the persecution was so great that I converted to Christianity. And after some years the Christians made me their bishop, and I went along all those years with the killing of my own people. And when you came to me and said the Baal Shem Tov wanted to speak to me, I knew I had to speak to him, and I asked him if there was anything I could do to be forgiven and to be healed. And he said, go and live a quiet life of good deeds. And if ever anyone comes and tells your story, then you'll know that you have been forgiven and you have been healed. He says, in all these years, I, I've never heard my story, and you came to me four days ago, and I remembered you right away, but you didn't remember me. And today you sit here and you tell my story. And when you tell my story, I know I've been forgiven and I've been healed. And I say to you that it's here in Alcoholics Anonymous more than anywhere else in the world that I hear my story told. And every time I hear my story told, I know that I have been forgiven and I have been healed. And you're the people that tell my story. So please, please come back and tell my story again. Thank you.